specifically for them as they make their way to the front to join our leaders and head upstairs. I want to encourage you, if you're remaining with us, to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Even as I say the words, Romans 8, out loud, you may well think of Romans 8.28 because Romans 8.28 is one of the most well-known, perhaps most well-tread, well-read, well-versed verses of Scripture in all of the Bible. People know. We, we put Romans 8.28 on wall decorations in our homes. We, we have Romans 8.28 on coffee mugs. We have uh, prayer journals and, and, and Scripture uh, journals and things that have Romans 8.28 adorned across the front of them. This is a well-known verse of Scripture, and yet often we misunderstand Romans 8.28 because we don't consider it in its proper context. We lift it, we divorce it from its context, and it loses the weight. What I hope that we understand together this morning as we study Romans 8, beginning in verse 18 through verse 30, is I hope that we come to the place, we arrive at the place where we understand not only the beauty of that verse, but the fuller meaning of this idea of God's good, His glory, and the fact that His glory is always for our good. Let me say one thing before we really dig into the text in Romans chapter 8. One thing that I want to uh, point out to you. So as I study each week through Romans, as we're working our way through the book of Romans right now, I use this journal that is, uh, that is published by Crossway. Crossway is the publishing company that, that publishes the English Standard Version, the ESV, the, the, the Bible version that I preach and study and, and, and teach from. Uh, and, and so Crossway produces these books. They are Bible journals that are, that are for each individual book of the Bible, the New Testament. I have a set of these, interestingly enough. I won the set as a table drawing at a conference that I went to. They, they, they did a drawing, and everybody who was at a particular table took home a set of these journals. And so I was sitting at the winning table, and I came home with a set of journals. And so I've been using this. Uh, and so what I do is actually, as we work our way through, uh, you're not going to be able to see this very well, but I'm going to hold it up as a reference nonetheless. I, on, on the one page is the text itself, and on the other side, I'm handwriting the, the Bible. I am, word by word, I am handwriting my way through the book of Romans, because I feel like that helps it soak in my memory in, in a better way. It helps me think on and, and marinate on and, and meditate on the text better by copying it. So by the time we've studied through the book of Romans, I will have written out the book of Romans by hand. And then on the left-hand page, I mark it up. I have a highlighter and different colors of pen, and I, and I circle and I underline and I, and, and I, and I mark it. I draw arrows and I, I just connect the different pieces. And I use that. That's kind of my foundation. I go from there into my Bible study software. I use Logos Bible study software, and I, I've got all these commentaries and, and, and word helps and all these other things that I dig into. But it starts for me by working through the Scripture. And this week, I got a phone call from one of our members who, who said, hey, I have discovered these journals for the, book of, the books of the Bible, and there's one for the book of Romans, and, and, and I think they would be great. And, and this member starts describing to me these journals, and I said, you know, it's interesting because that's actually the very tool that I use as I study through the text. And frankly, perhaps sadly, it never occurred, it never occurred to me 
that we could make those available, or that we should look into that or, or something of that nature. And so this member suggested, well, I actually have already been on the phone with the publishing company this morning, and you can buy a case of the journals. And, and you, you know, they had worked out some of the details and made arrangements. Here's a number. You can call this number. And so I did, and, and we had them shipped. And so I have 50 copies of this that we're going to make available. I'm going to step down here and, uh, and, and just point to... I've got a stack of these this morning. If you would like one after the service today... Uh, we're going to make them available. If we run out, we can get more, uh, but we're going to make these available. If it, now, don't get it if it's just going to become you know, decoration on a shelf so that you feel good about having more books on the shelf. But if you're going to use this, I would love for you to take one of these and, and for us to make it available to you. We paid, we have $3 a piece in them because we got a bulk discount for buying a case of them. And so we've got 50 of these for $150, and, and so if, if you feel led to give $3 to, to, to pay for that, you, you're, you can do that. You don't have to, okay? Uh, and so if you, if you want one, it's a great tool, a great resource. Grab one. If we run out, we'll get more, okay? I just wanted to pitch that this morning as we continue our study through Romans. And we're halfway through the book of Romans now officially. There are 16 chapters in Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 8. So you'll be halfway through it, but you can go backward. You can work your way backward and, and study. You can take notes from this point forward, and, and we want to make those available to you. And thank you to our member who, uh, who suggested that as a great idea for us to do. Well, Romans chapter 8, and, and as I've mentioned already, particularly verse 28. You know, it's interesting that we just sang the song, It Is Well. I don't know if you know the backstory behind that song. That song was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. And here's the backstory on the hymn itself that his, members of his family drowned when a, a cross-Atlantic voyage, uh, the ship that they were on crossing the Atlantic, sank. And some time later, Spafford boarded a ship to cross the Atlantic, and at the point where they were, where, where they were crossing over the place where the ship carrying his family had, had sank, and he's there uh, mourning the loss of his loved ones. It was from that, through that moment and those experiences that he penned these words, it is well with my soul. And a lot of times when we think about that and we sing that song, we think that everything is good, right? It's, it's kind of the, the song, you remember a few years ago there was the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, or Hakuna Matata, you remember that? The, uh, uh, the, we've seen t-shirts with the smiley face, and, and it'll say something like, it's all good, or don't worry, be... And, and there's this idea that we just need to be happy about everything, and that we just need to accept everything with a smile on our face. And the reality is that's not the real world. That's not where we live. That's not how we feel. And, and sometimes there is, there is a, a subtle tension, uh, perhaps even a bit of peer pressure amongst believers when we think on and we reflect on Romans 8.28 to just say, well, I should just be happy with everything because God's going to work it all together for good. And when we divorce this verse from its greater context, what we, we, we walk away disillusioned, perhaps disappointed with God. See, I believe this, and we'll see this in our study this morning. God is faithful and true to His Word. He is working all things together for good. There's no question in my mind about that. 
But good is the key word. We must understand what is good. Because good doesn't mean that you're going to eventually get your way on everything. To say that God is working all things together for good doesn't mean that you have to be happy about everything that happens. Frankly, it doesn't mean that everything that's going to happen, that you're always going to see the silver lining and you're going to understand what's, what's taking place. And that it doesn't, it's not a promise to you that at some point in life you're going to look back and go, oh, I see, that's what God was doing. No. It's a promise rooted in the very character of God, in His goodness, in His faithfulness, in His justice, that in all things He is working in such a way that He will bring about what is truly good, true good, His good, big picture good in our world and in our lives. Because God is always at work for His glory, and His glory is always for our good. And I want us to understand that and see that as we study this text together. So let's read together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 30. And then I want us to see how we, are, how we can overcome the sufferings of this world through the promise in this Scripture. And when I, when I talk about overcoming suffering, again, let's, let's, let's be clear about what I mean. I don't mean that that we get to the place where we think, oh, this is great. I, I, I mean truly overcome in the sense that we have victory over our sufferings because Jesus has won the victory for us. And even when our hearts are broken and even when we are living with sadness and mourning and loss and brokenness and pain and trial and tribulation, even in that, there is victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. Praise God, we will see that as we study His Word this morning. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What a beautiful text of Scripture that teaches us about God's work in our lives. Now, last week we left off with the idea of suffering. So if you go back to Romans 8, verse 17, the, verse, the very last verse that we studied last week, we see that we are heirs with Christ 
provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. And the text this week expounds more fully on that idea of how it is that we are glorified with Christ as we share in His sufferings. And so the key that I want you to see, the key to all of this, to understanding this, is that we overcome suffering in this moment, in this life, by fixing our hope and our faith to Jesus. That the way that we overcome suffering is not by somehow getting on the other side and, and seeing in, in the rearview mirror all that God was doing. Because frankly, sometimes we never see what God was doing. Sometimes we never understand what God was up to. Sometimes we never fully understand the purpose that He's producing in us through our sufferings. And yet, if we will remain faithful to Him and hold fast to Him and fix our hope on Him, And we will never be disappointed because God is always at work in a way that will bring about His glory. And His glory is always for our good. The glory of God is always for your good. And so you need to understand that that we can overcome overcome suffering. We can overcome all the pain of this life through the victory that Jesus won. But when we think about sufferings, let's ask the question, what is the source of suffering? What is the source of suffering? Of suffering. Well, I would, I would contend that the source of suffering is sin. That suffering itself is rooted in the fall, in the brokenness, in the, the fall of creation. That's the very argument that Paul is making here in the early verses when he talks about the creation itself groans. That we ourselves, we as a part of this creation, we too, we wait eagerly and we groan in this moment. What he's talking about, the brokenness that we experience in this life, in this present time, because of sin. But praise God, he also tells us that the glory that is to come, the glory that is to be revealed when we meet Jesus, our Savior, face to face, is so far greater, so far better than any suffering, any momentary affliction that we face in this life. And in light of, in light of eternity, and in light of all that is to come, when we experience that glory fully, face to face, when we stand face to face in the presence of Jesus, all of this will fade away. You see, that's the good that we're promised. That's the good that we fix our hope to. Not that, not that everything in life is going to be rosy, right? It's not that the sun is going to come out tomorrow. That's your bottom dollar. Tomorrow there'll be sun. You know, it's not that, right? It's not just buck up and cheer up and put a smile on and dance through life. But rather a hope that is fixed to the saving power of Christ in His resurrection so that we might know that no matter what we face in this life, In light of reality, we will overcome through the victory that Jesus won. That is our hope. That is our future. That is our guarantee. That is the promise that we claim as we look to this. So we overcome suffering and sin through the power of Jesus and the victory that He's won. That's the key to understanding all of this in its context. Is that the victory comes through faith in Jesus. Well, if sin is the source of suffering, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how do we overcome suffering? Really, we're asking the question then, how do we overcome sin? And the answer in this text is that we overcome sin and the suffering that sin produces by looking to Jesus and fixing our hope on Him. In fact, there are four distinct ways in this text that I want us to see that, that we overcome suffering and sin through fixing our eyes on Jesus. The first point in your notes is that sin brings suffering. And you'll notice that phrase itself is 
is repeated in each of the points for this morning's message. Because that phrase is, that, that's the, the bad news, if you will. And everything that follows will be the good news. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. So sin brings suffering. That's the bad news. We experience suffering. We experience brokenness. We experience all of those pains in this life because of sin and the fall. And yet, we can overcome. Why? Because Jesus brings salvation. Sin brings suffering, but Jesus brings salvation. This text is packed full of ways that we see the salvation of Jesus alive in our lives. Look at it. I mean, just go through it phrase by phrase, right? These sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's to come. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is to come? We know what is to come. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we can keep going verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and we see this this glorious picture of salvation that is made available through faith in Jesus. As we turn from our sin, the source of our suffering, and turn to Jesus, the source of our salvation, our Savior who saves us and redeems us, we are set free. Now that doesn't mean that we no longer experience suffering. In fact, suffering is a guarantee of this life. Suffering is, suffering is inevitable in light of the brokenness of the fall and the reality of sin in this present age, in this moment, and and the sin in our hearts that we've seen in our study through Romans and and, and the way that we we are drawn to sin by that nature within us that would lead us to, to disobey, to turn our hearts against the Lord. Sin is an inevitability for us that we face because of the fall. And... Because sin is the source of our suffering, that means that in reality, suffering is inevitable for us as well. And yet suffering does not have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Jesus has the final victory. Jesus has punctuated his victory over sin and death with the power of his resurrection so that he has proven to us that his power is greater. And we experience salvation as we turn from our sin and turn to our Savior. That's the very essence of what it tells us here. Verse 24, in this hope, we were saved. We were saved. We were saved in this hope. We are saved from our sin because we have turned to Jesus and He is our salvation. He is the one who won the victory on our behalf. So sin brings suffering, but Jesus brings salvation. Before we move on, I I have to ask the question, Do you know this salvation through faith in Jesus? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you've turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, where you have trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sin, where you have repented of that brokenness, repented of that sin by placing your faith in Jesus? Oftentimes when we're describing that process of salvation, we we speak of it in rather elementary terms. And the reason is because the truth itself is rather simple. In order to turn from my sin and turn to a Savior, I have to acknowledge my sin. I admit my sin before God. God, I know that I'm a sinner. Not only that, I have to believe in His power over sin and death. And so, Lord, I I acknowledge my sin, but I believe in Your power to forgive my sin. And what's more, I ask that You would come in my heart by faith as I trust in You. Forgive me of my sin. Wipe away the past. 
And then we confess Him as Savior and Lord. We acknowledge not only His power over sin and death, but His his power over our lives. I confess you as my Lord and Savior. That's the ABCs that we admit, we believe, and we confess. And if you would be willing to repent of your sins and turn to a Savior, you can be saved. Romans teaches us that throughout the book of Romans. But perhaps amongst the most well-known words are in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 that tell us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, that we will be saved. It goes on in the next verse to describe that it's with the mouth that one confesses. It's with the, the, the heart that one believes. And so, if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you can experience this gift of salvation. In a few verses later, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. But it's the promise of God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you turned to Jesus for salvation? Not only do we see that sin brings suffering, but Jesus brings salvation. This text teaches us that sin brings suffering, but Jesus brings redemption. Redemption. Not only can we be saved from our sin, but we can be redeemed. Now think about what it means to be redeemed. When we think of something that is redeemed, we think in terms of something that is that is made that is made right, something that is 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 balanced, something that is uh, that is that is used for its proper purpose. You, You ever gone to the store and you redeemed a coupon? When, when you redeem a coupon, what are you doing? You are, you are giving them the coupon, which is a promise that in exchange for that coupon or that code or whatever it may be, depending on how you're shopping, right? In exchange for that coupon, they promise to give you a certain discount. There's an exchange that takes place when you redeem that. You are offering up the code. You are offering up the coupon. You are offering up the... But it's based on terms that have been set forth, and you redeem that. Salvation works in this way. The Lord has set forth terms by which we might be saved. And those terms are simply that we would turn from our sin and turn to Jesus as Savior. And as we place our faith and our trust in Him, we can be redeemed. We say, Lord, I trust in You. And on the promise of that faith, on the promise of that trust, our sins are forgiven and the past washed away. And that is all made possible by that salvation, that victory that Jesus won. There's a redemption that takes place. And this passage points us to see that redemption. It points us to see that that though there is brokenness in this life and though there is futility because of the the corruption caused by sin, through faith in Jesus, there is redemption. At the end of verse 23, it even tells us that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that day when that redemption takes place, when it's fully realized, at least in as much as we experience the final victory, the final reward through those promises of Jesus. But even in this moment, even here and now, we experience this redemption, this redeeming work that that Jesus receives us 
as his sons and his daughters. That was, that was the idea of adoption that's here in this text. is in the text that we studied last week and even the week before that. This theme of adoption that keeps showing up again and again. That we become children of God, heirs, co-heirs with Christ by faith in Him. That we are redeemed from our sin. We have a new identity, a new reality. Now as children of God, heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We experience that because of Jesus and His work. So although sin brings suffering, Jesus brings redemption. He offers us a way to be redeemed from our sin, redeemed from the curse of sin, the brokenness of sin, the corruption, the the imprisonment, if you will. We experience redemption through faith in Jesus. Third, in this text, we see that sin brings suffering. Jesus brings hope. Jesus brings hope. And when we use the word hope, oftentimes we think of hope along the lines of something that is, uh, maybe we say hypothetical, or something that is ideological. When we use the word hope, oftentimes we think about something that might happen, but it might not. It's uncertain. Oh, but you must understand that the word hope here is not talking about something that's merely theoretical or ideological, or uncertain, but rather this is something that is a guarantee, that is a sure thing, that is a promise rooted in the very character, the very person of Jesus Himself, so that when we hope in Him, we can be certain of that which we hope for. For in this hope we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes or for, rather, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so our hope, we, the reason we use the word hope is because we're trusting in and believing in something that we haven't yet seen. We haven't yet fully experienced. We haven't yet fully realized. And frankly, this side of heaven, we never will. But because we know the one who made those promises to us, because we know of the one by faith who gave us those guarantees, the one who secured the way of salvation for us, our hope is not uncertain, but rather it is, it is guaranteed. It is tied to the very, the very victory that Jesus won. And so we can be patient. We can endure suffering in this life. We can persevere in the midst of hardship and pain because Jesus Himself is the source of our hope. Jesus Himself is the One who has guaranteed His promises to us. Both through His his promise, His Word, and then certainly verified, cemented through His work on the cross And through the power of His resurrection. And so, though we experience sin momentarily in this life, though we struggle against suffering, we hope fully in the victory that Jesus has won. And we believe in the day when we will know that victory. Now we know in part, someday we will know in full the victory that Jesus has won. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 promises us. We go on to say, the, to read, excuse me, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So if everything up to this point, you would say, yeah, I get it, I understand it, I'm, I'm with you, I'm tracking, and yet, I struggle. Well, if that's you, then you're not alone. There's hope for you even in that. 
If everything up to this point, if you would say yes, it's like checking the boxes of faith, checking the boxes of belief. Yes, I trust the Lord for my salvation. Yes, I believe in the power of His redemption, making me new, making all things new, setting me free from the sin and the corruption of this life. Yes, I hope in Jesus. Yes, I believe and I anchor my hope to the person and the work of Jesus. And and I trust in the future and I believe in His promise and I know and yet the reality is where I live day by day, moment by moment, is there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of uncertainty and anxiety. And, and, and there's, there's, there's some doubt that creeps in. There's weakness. And if that's you and, you, and you can identify with that weakness, can I tell you there's, there's hope even in the weakness? Because our hope, again, is fixed in Jesus. And so he goes on to describe. This is the way he describes. These are powerful words, by the way. And so I want to read again, beginning in verse 26 through verse 30, because certainly verse 28 is the the anchor point of this. Certainly that is the, the bedrock of what we understand. But it's important that we see it in, in this bigger picture of, of this truth that is meant to guide and shepherd our hearts. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this is the third time that this word groanings has shown up just in these verses. So there's a lot of groaning going on here, which just means there's a lot of pain. The reason that, we, that He's using that word, it, it, it's meant to, to point us to our pain. There's a lot of pain that happens. But you know what? The Spirit recognizes, the Holy Spirit of God recognizes our suffering. He recognizes our pain. He recognizes our weakness. He sees us in the midst of our sorrow and our struggle. And He intercedes on our behalf. He's making intercession. He's standing in the gap for us so that we are not our, alone. We are not on our own. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so he who searches hearts, that's, that's the Lord, is it not? That's, and, and, and God, when He searches our hearts, the one who searches our hearts, He knows, He knows the, the mind of the Spirit because that Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. Which is all of that is to say, the Spirit is interceding for you on your behalf. And then verse 28. And we know, and let's pause there, because that word is key. We know. You know, there are a lot of things in this life that I, that I believe. And there are a lot of things in this life that I would say, I, 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 I think I understand. There are a lot of things in this life that I'm hopeful for. and that I'm, there, there, Certainly, there are a good number of things that I know just enough about to be dangerous, right? Just enough about to, to be useful. But there are relatively few things in life that I could say, oh, I know this. I can, inside and out, to the core of my being, heart and soul, I know this to be true. And yet that's the word. In fact, the the word itself is actually tied to, it's connected to uh, the, the idea of not just knowledge, but intimate knowledge. So in the translation of the Old Testament, when, when, the, uh, when the Greek-speaking uh, Jews, when, when they translated what we call the Septuagint, 
And they, they would use this word. There's a Hebrew word, yada, which means to know. And it speaks of an intimate knowledge. It's actually, it's actually the word that the Bible uses to speak about uh, the relationship between a husband and wife, a sexual union, that word know, that, that they would know each other. And that word yada, the knowledge of, intimate knowledge of, when the, when the writers of the, the Greek or the translators, I should say, rather, of the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, would translate that word into Greek in the Septuagint. They would use this word, know. It's rooted in an intimate knowledge that we know that all things work together for good. That's what it says, right? We know that for those who love God, that's the next key phrase, those who love God, This is not a universal promise to everyone. This is a particular promise given to those who love God, who know Him, and who are called according to His purpose, as we'll see in the final phrase. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, again, here it is, the the, the boundaries, the delimiting truth. For those who are called according to His purpose. And so we see that sin brings suffering in this life, Jesus brings purpose in the midst of our suffering. He gives purpose to our sufferings. He gives purpose to our pains. He gives purpose to this present moment and all that we're going through as we look to Him. What is that purpose? I'm glad you asked. At least I'm glad you thought about it. Because the very next verse tells us what that purpose is. Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those are Big words. We're going to come back and and explain and and talk about those words in a minute. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what's it telling us? That those whom He foreknew, He predestined that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus so that others might live in that victory that Jesus won. So that others might experience that power over sin and death. That others might be adopted in as as sons and daughters, as heirs, as co-heirs together with Christ through the victory that He won. So Jesus is the firstborn among many. He's the forerunner, the one who went before making a way for the rest. He was the first among many. So as we trust in Jesus by faith, we now live in the power of His victory. The power of His salvation, His redemption, His hope realized in our hearts by faith. And that brings to us a purpose, a reason, a meaning, a mission in this life. And we go on to read, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. We experience this salvation at work in us through faith in Jesus, giving us a purpose, as it says in verse 28. So what is your purpose? What is this purpose that he's speaking of here? The purpose of God for you is that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus. That you, that you would experience the same victory that Jesus won through faith in him. And so he he speaks here of these words, 
foreknew and predestined. And, and oftentimes that troubles us. That's a troubling theology. That's a troubling, a troubling reality that we have to think about, that we have to contend with. We have to sit with these truths and think about and meditate on these truths. We also need to understand them in its fuller context because it brings up this, this doctrinal idea, this doctrine of election. And, and that's one that a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with. A, a lot of Baptists particularly are, uh, are, are uncomfortable with the idea of election because we think, okay, well, how does that election work? How does the foreknowledge of God? And so some would argue that, well, this is the way that the foreknowledge of God works. So that God, standing in, at the beginning of time, before human time and existence, that God looked into the future and He knew everything that people would do. And so to say that He foreknew us just means that He knew ahead of time those who would choose Him and He didn't. And I'm, I'll tell you, that's actually not, that's not a theologically sound understanding to this, this idea here. Because it, it strips God of His agency. It strips Him of His power of choice. It strips Him of His sovereignty over our hearts and our lives. I think there is a tension that we hold in sway here between understanding that somehow in His power, somehow in His sovereign will, somehow in His graciousness and His goodness and His power of all things, the Lord predestined those. And I don't know. I certainly don't believe that it means that uh, that you and I have no power and that we have no choice and we have no agency when we come to Him. That doesn't fit with our experience and frankly it doesn't fit with the, the witness of Scripture as well because though Paul writes here of the foreknowledge and the predestination that are ours, he also goes on to write in Romans ten thirteen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That same Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires for all men. Peter, uh, a, a contemporary and, and one of the, the disciples, writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, about this predestination as well. And so the, the witness of Scripture is clearly that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that God's desires for everyone to turn to Him in faith, turn from sin in faith. 1 Peter 2, 9 says that God is patient, concerning His promise and, he, and, and that He desires for all of us to come to salvation. So the, the witness of Scripture clearly is that God has made a way for us to be saved and His desire for us is to turn from our sin. And yet, that same Scripture tells us that there is, that there is a, a, a willful act of God in drawing us and bringing us to salvation at work there. And there's a tension that we wrestle with. Sometimes we want to dismiss that away too easily. We'll deal with that same tension more fully in Romans chapter 9 in the coming weeks. Not next week because we finish Romans 8 next week. But when we get into Romans chapter 9, particularly the middle part of Romans chapter 9, I'll just give you a little preview. It, to me, is the most difficult passage in all of the Bible for me personally on a personal level to understand. And we have to wrestle with that and we have to sit with that tension. And we pray for understanding and we seek to know the Scripture. But what I believe is really the heart of the matter here that I want you to see today is this is that the foreknowledge of God brought about a way that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the purpose. Even here in verse 29, he's not specifically saying that in the beginning of things, God, he looked into the future and he picked, he, he picked a few. And he said, I want, I want Michael and I want Rayleigh and I want these. And I, you know, he's not just, he's not just hand. That's not, that's not what the scripture is teaching. He's saying that according to his foreknowledge and his, his work of salvation and the plan that God had from the beginning, he has made a way for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that is through faith and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the predestination. The predestination here in this text is that we would be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
that God has made a way from the foundation. That, that gives us certainty. That gives us hope. That secures our faith in Christ to know that my sin did not, did not, uh, did not disrupt the plan of God. That my sin did not, somehow, did, did not somehow break God's plan and His purpose for my life. No. From the beginning, He had a plan that was greater than my sin. Greater than my, than my corruption. Greater than my rebellion that I could be forgiven and set free. So at the perfect time, He set forth His Son to be for us the the Savior, the Redeemer, to pay the price through His death on the cross. What a beautiful picture that is. These are weighty truths. These are heavy doctrines. And yet, it's pointing us back to God's love and His power and His grace and His purpose in our lives. That we would live with this truth and live in light of this truth. His purpose for your life is that you would be one of many. Jesus was the firstborn, and by faith, you too can be an heir. You might be one of many who are conformed to that image because Jesus made a way for you to be forgiven. Sin brings suffering. Jesus brings salvation. Sin brings suffering. Jesus brings redemption. Sin brings suffering. Jesus brings hope. Sin brings suffering, but Jesus brings us a purpose in this life, that we would know Him by faith and be conformed to that image. You see, again and again, we see that the power of Jesus to bring salvation is greater than the sin and the suffering that we face in this life. So that, let's connect it back to last week, we are heirs of God provided that we experience His victory over that suffering and we continue to walk with Him hoping in the future, trusting in the glorification of all things that is, to, that is to come when we meet Jesus face to face. What a blessed and beautiful truth that is for us. We may turn from our sin and turn to a Savior who stands ready to forgive us and set us free. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. And as we reflect on and respond, there's no more appropriate way to respond to this truth than to say, Lord, in light of all that you've done for me, I want to offer all that I am to you. God, believing in your power over sin and death, believing in the victory that you won, I want to turn away from my sin and turn to you by faith. Maybe that's a decision that you've made uh, at a a previous time in the past. Maybe there was a, a moment already in your life when you've trusted Jesus by faith. You've trusted him for the forgiveness of your sin. Even today, you can offer him your praise and you can offer your life as a living sacrifice. Lord, I want to give all that I have. Even today, I renew that commitment. Even today, I, I want to be more fully yielded and fully submitted and surrendered to you that I may experience that resurrection power alive in me, conforming me to your image. But for some, perhaps today, this might be the moment of salvation. Maybe there's never been a moment when you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and you've confessed Him as your Lord and Savior, if that's you, and my prayer is that even as we sing this song today, you would walk the aisle. Meet me here at the front. Brad and I, will actually just be me today. I guess Brad's singing, right? So I'll be here at the front. I'm so used to saying Brad and I will be at the front. But today I'll be standing here at the front, ready to receive you, ready to lead you through that prayer of commitment that you could turn from your sin, turn to Jesus as Savior, trusting Him for the forgiveness of sin and confessing Him as Lord and Savior of your life. And you would receive by faith His power. You would be adopted as a daughter, a son of God. 
If that's you today, then even as we sing, I pray that you would come and surrender your life to Jesus. As we prepare for this moment of response, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And as we go together before the Lord in prayer, let's just, let's, let's agree together in prayer this morning that we want to see his victory at work in our hearts and our lives, that we desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus as we trust in him by faith and turn from our sin. Lord, we are grateful in the power that you have won for us on the, through your, your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection from the tomb. Jesus, that you made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. And even now, as we set our hope in you and we live daily in that hope, we pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you by faith, may this be the moment of their salvation. This be the moment of their surrender where they turn from sin and turn to you, Jesus, as Savior. And Lord, as you work in our hearts and as you move in us, use us to point others to faith in Jesus. That a part of that purpose of our conformity to the image of Christ might be to share the message of Christ. Jesus, we, we would rather have you than anything in this world. We're about to declare that truth in song, but we believe it to be true. There's nothing in this life that compares to knowing you by faith. And so as we set our hope fully in you and fix our eyes on you, may you be all in all in us, Jesus. This we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this song of invitation, even as we declare these words of truth. I invite you to come if the Lord is moving in your heart and you're ready to surrender your life to Him today. I'd rather